I think a, a, a materialist approach to things is, is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, and I teach media studies at Greenville University. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a Catholic PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. Uh, so uh, this episode's going to be a little bit different than maybe some of the past uh, episodes that we've done. Um, so someone that we come back to, I think, time and time again throughout the conversations we have on this podcast is Richard Gilman Opolsky. Um, we talk about him um, all over the place. <laughs> uh, specifically, you can go back and listen to our conversations about Richard in episode 23. Uh, it's an episode called Private Property is Bad. Uh, so we talked a lot about uh, his uh, thoughts and theory on revolt and revolution and riots. Um, so go check that out if you want. Otherwise, you can hear it all right now in this episode from <laughs> right from him. Uh, Richard Gilmopolsky is a really big deal to me uh, personally. He was the chair of my MA thesis. Uh, he's an ongoing mentor. Uh, is a really nice guy. <laughs> he's uh, definitely one of uh, one of the people I look up to most, sort of academically and personally. Uh, so really excited that um, I get to kind of introduce him to the larger podcasting community for the Magnificast. Yeah, uh, I'm also excited that you have introduced him to me, Matt. I feel like uh, a lot of my thoughts have been clarified since reading some of his stuff and picking up his books and. Um, I even read a cool article about the Pope uh, and nonviolence with respect to what he's been doing. So that's very cool. Um, Richard Gilmanopolsky is an associate professor of political philosophy in the Department of Political Science at the University of Illinois in Springfield. Uh, his research and teaching uh, usually focus on the history of political philosophy, contemporary social theory, Marxism, autonomous politics, critical theory, and social movements, all the good stuff. Uh, he's the author of four books, Spectres of Revolt, Precarious Communism, Spectacular Capitalism, and Unbounded Publics. And he's the co-editor of a recent volume for Temple University Press called Against Capital in the 21st Century. Oh, dang. Those are all my favorite books. Nice. Well, what follows is a talk that Richard gave at Greenville University in the fall of 2017 on uh, the topic of incarceration, riots, and policing. Uh, it's a really neat talk. He delivered it to some of my students in... Um, this capstone course about incarceration uh, so it really fit in and it gave a cool perspective to the class that I don't think that they would have gotten otherwise. So um, in this talk he applies the theory that he develops in his 2016 book Spectres of Revolt to um, the pressing concerns about despised, brutalized, and incarcerated bodies in revolt. He then goes on to argue that an extreme yet normalized violence of racism and class oppression makes the incarceration of black and brown bodies into a reality both within and outside the prisons. Finally, he explains that we can learn a lot by listening to these despised and incarcerated bodies that are in revolt, 
But uh, before we can even do that, we need to learn how to listen to them. All right, well, without any further to do, here is Richard Gilman Opolsky. So I'm going I'm to talk a little bit about this theme of uh, incarcerated bodies in revolt, ghosts of the past, present, and future. And then we'll have, hopefully, a good discussion after. So if I say something that you want to talk more about, make note of it. Uh, this really bothers you or upsets you, especially make note of it. Um, and hopefully we'll have a nice discussion um, as well. So uh, my most recent book, Specters of Revolt, was published this time last year in November of uh, 2016. It's been out a year. And this afternoon, uh, what I plan to do is apply the theory developed in Specters of Revolt to specific concerns about incarceration and recent revolt in the United States. So what I'm going to argue is that an extreme yet normalized violence of racism makes the incarceration of black and brown bodies into a reality in this country, both within and outside of prisons. So I'm talking about incarceration inside and outside of prisons. One of the overarching questions, how does incarceration exceed the boundaries of the prison? How does incarceration exceed the boundaries of the prison? So if you would just think about that question along with me. I also argue that we can learn from the wisdom of revolt, the wisdom of revolt, which I see as both necessary and healthy. Social revolt, upheaval, uprising. I'll talk about some of these things in a moment more. But the first thing to learn from the wisdom of revolt would be to learn how to listen, how to understand its language. Understanding the relationship of incarceration to revolt, I think, can, can greatly help with this task. Okay, So what, first of all, is meant by revolt? What is, what is meant by revolt is a kind of politics by other means than conventional politics. Revolt is a kind of politics by other means than conventional politics. It can include lots of things. When we say the word revolt, many things may come to mind. Different forms of social upheaval, riots, insurrections, civil disobedience, uncivil disobedience, disruptions of protest, social movements, among other things, including the occupations of buildings, of parks, of workplaces. Now, these are all things we've seen throughout history in various places and ways, including in very recent history. We have seen many examples of these things globally. Right? Occupations of parks, occupations of buildings. Social movements, you will think of when I say those words, one example or another, I imagine. Many, of, many different things would be included in the category of revolt. Now, from the many North American slave revolts of the 18th and 19th centuries to the race riots of the 20th century, 
Springfield, Illinois, where I drove here from this afternoon. 1908, there was a race riot. It gave rise to the NAACP in Springfield, Illinois, 1908. To Watts, Los Angeles, 1965, the Los Angeles riots in 1992, associated with the case of Rodney King. Some of you may have heard of that. To more recent uprisings in Ferguson, pretty close to where we sit, 2014, Baltimore, 2015, the Black Lives Matter disruptions at the Mall of America in Minneapolis, Minneapolis Airport occupation in Minnesota, December of 2015, the Charlotte Revolt of 2016, to fresh upheaval in St. Louis, just recently in late September 2017. So you have a lot of different nodal points where we can think of uprisings, fresh uprisings of various kinds. They look different. They don't all look the same. But there is always some part of the revolt that expresses grievances carried over from the past. Specters of revolt not only threaten to disrupt everyday life, but also to excavate buried questions that haunt societies with long histories of violence. Because not everything that has happened is finished. Not everything that ends is over. Sometimes something happens, and you say, it started on this date, and it ended on that date. But it isn't over. There's unfinished business. It isn't resolved. And what revolt does is it takes up the unfinished business of societies. It takes up the unfinished business of the previous revolt. So something, when I was just planning to come here and thinking about this, I was looking at the 2017 St. Louis uprising following the uh, September 15th not guilty verdict, acquitting a white police officer for the 2011 killing of Anthony Lamar Smith. And one of the things that was so interesting in looking at this most recent wave of uprising in St. Louis was how the specter of Ferguson from 2014 was haunting St. Louis in September of 2017. There was a specter of revolt from Ferguson. You may, have, you may remember this was in the wake of the police killing of Michael Brown. There was a specter of revolt, and how was it conjured, the specter? What I found was that Ferguson of 2014 was directly invoked by both the protesters in September this couple months ago. They kept saying that what they were doing was continuing the movement of Ferguson 2014, and also it was invoked in the major news media coverage about the recurrence of a similar disruption. So what they were worrying about in the news in September of 2017, what they were worrying about very openly was the recurrence of 2014, right? Different cases, same general location geographically, close enough, and the specter haunts. So it's for this reason that specters of revolt supersede the boundaries of temporal categories, like cigarette smoke 
in the old smoking sections of restaurants, which I don't even know if those exist anymore. Do you ever see those smoking sections? They're gone, right? I don't know if you see those. There used to be, not too long ago, you sit in one section of the restaurant and it's no smoking. And the next table is a smoking section. So the problem is, is that cigarette smoke does not abide by smoking sections. Ghosts also do not abide by such boundaries. Ghosts from the past haunt the present, and ghosts in the present may materialize once again in the future. I think many people knew in Ferguson of 2014 that when that noise quieted down, when the upheaval settled down, many people knew in Ferguson in 2014 that it was not over. Ghosts carry history into the future. But what I want to focus on this afternoon is the specific context or contexts of incarcerated bodies. So first, let's consider an example that I do discuss in Specters of Revolt, because I don't focus on incarceration in the book from last year. But there's one example in that book that I do discuss, a distant, ancient one. During the gladiatorial times of the Roman Empire, an assorted subset of criminals, broadly defined criminality, slaves, were held captive and trained as gladiators. Gladiators were trained for violent confrontation with other gladiators as a form of entertainment, but not only that, it was a form of entertainment tinged with the moral endorsement of the ideas of punishment and justice. Because these were criminals, they were worthy of being forced to entertain people by this, these uh, games, these games of death. Their training took place in the ludus. It's L-U-D-U-S, the word ludus, if you haven't seen the word before. A gladiatorial school which was also often the site of their captivity and servitude. Gladiators lived in severe prison conditions. They were regarded as subhuman. They were forced to fight to death. One of Karl Marx's favorite heroes is somebody that I guarantee you all have heard of. Have you heard of Spartacus? You've heard the name Spartacus? And don't be ashamed if you know about Spartacus from the stars cable show, because I watched that too, and I liked it. All right? I'm not saying it's historically accurate, but um, it actually wasn't terrible. Um, one of Marx's favorite heroes, Spartacus, emerged in such a school, a ludus. Marx saw this in this an example of the oppressed, as, as Marx called it, the ancient proletariat rising up. Now, this has recently... Uh, this characterization of Spartacus as an ancient proletariat rising up against a proto-capitalist oligarchy has come under uh, criticism by an excellent uh, Italian historian, uh, Aldo Schiavone, who wrote a book called, uh, in published in 2013, Spartacus, which I recommend um, if, you're, if you're looking for book recommendations in November. Um, but no doubt the conditions of enslavement gave rise to the slave revolt that led to the Third Servile War. No doubt 
the conditions of enslavement. So certain parts of the interpretation of Spartacus have been challenged by historians. They have been rewritten and rethought in various ways, but there's no doubt that the conditions of imprisonment gave rise to the revolt within the prison and then beyond. This iconic slave revolt was in fact the materialization of a possibility that haunted every ludus. Every ludus was haunted by the specter of revolt. The ludus and the Colosseum were equipped, for example, with cages, guards, tunnels, multiple forms of abuse, discipline, punishment, for the maintenance of order, for the suppression of the insurrectionary impulses of the prisoners. So sometimes you can tell what people are planning for by reading the architecture. If you look sometimes at the architectural structure of things, I would even say of cities, if you look at planning and urban development, you can see what people are anticipating there. And the Ludus was built, the Colosseum was built to guard against the possible revolt on the horizon and to suppress, to keep down the insurrectionary impulses. And how could it have been any other way that the Ludus would be haunted by the specter of revolt? The captivity of so many despised and brutalized bodies would have necessarily depended upon a repressive system to guard against the outbreak of revolt. You would have to expect it there. And that, I think, suggests a certain hauntology. Hauntology is a word with which I mean to indicate the logic of a haunting. The logic of a haunting. We don't say, for example, that the ancient and the abandoned Ludus Magnus, the largest arena and gladiatorial school in Rome, is haunted because of the violence that once occurred there. Sometimes hauntologies go that way. You go and you find the site where people were held captive and abused, murdered or tortured, you say that the abused and the murdered, they haunt that place. But actually, we understand that that whole system, that whole slave system, was haunted by the specter of its possible overthrow. So that means that before any revolt occurred, before any revolt occurred in the Ludus Magnus, the Ludus was already haunted by the specter of its overthrow, by the specter of revolt, and it knew it and it provided us evidence in its architecture. So what this uh, possibility for the overthrow of the ludus, the overthrow of the prison the revolt, the prison revolt, would always be made a necessary fear by power holders because it was in, within the energies of the repressed and the captive humanity that you would have to, the guards would have to expect the revolt on the horizon. So now can we speak today of different systems of captivity and repression that give rise to revolt? Or was this only a problem of antiquity? Well, what I want to say now is it's not at all an old, antiquated problem. It's not a closed chapter. A book was published last year 
by Heather Ann Thompson called Blood in the Water, which is another historian uh, who was, instead of writing about Spartacus like Chiavone, uh, Thompson wrote about the 1971 Attica prison uprising. 1971 in Attica, New York. And it, and it helps the book to explain how prisons always have to worry about revolt within the energies of the repressed captive humanity. But maybe it's just something that ended in the 1980s. The problem is that many scholars today study how present incarceration continues and perfects systems of captivity and repression, and specifically within the United States, an interesting thesis, with direct lineages to slavery. That is to say, many of the people who study incarceration in the United States today see incarceration in the United States as having clear demonstrable linkages to the institution of slavery in this country. Okay? So I make a small footnote here that I, that if, if I may make a, a brief footnote here on something I didn't uh, plan to mention is that I know that you've been, uh, you've read Michelle Alexander and Angela Davis. Angela Davis wrote a book in 2005 called Abolition Democracy, where she talks about another book by W.E.B. Du Bois, Black Reconstruction, that was published in the 30s. And one of the things that Davis points out is that right after the institution of slavery was abolished legally, prisons started popping up. Du Bois wrote about this, too. Oh, in 1935, he wrote about the coincidence of the growth of the prison industry with the abolition of slavery, and also how growing numbers of black and brown people in the United States were incarcerated at precisely periods of time in which crime rates were going down. So this was something that led uh, Davis to take a, a word that was coined by Du Bois, abolition democracy, and say we've got to continue the abolitionist movement after the abolition of slavery because there is unfinished business. See. Now Angela Davis argues that, quote, racism is even more effective and more devastating today than it was during the era that produced the civil rights movement. This country's imprisoned population provides a dramatic example. Among the more than two million people currently in prison, over 70% are people of color, close quotes. According to Michelle Alexander, who I, I understand you've read in her book, the New Jim Crow from 2012, quote, the United States now has the highest rate of incarceration in the world, dwarfing the rates of nearly every developed country, even surpassing those in highly repressive regimes like Russia, China, and Iran. In Germany, Alexander continues, 93% 
I'm sorry, 93 people, not 93%, 93 people are in prison for every 100,000 adults and children. In the United States, Alexander says, the rate is roughly eight times that, or 750 people in prison per 100,000. Alexander also says, still quoting, the racial dimension of mass incarceration is its most striking feature. No other country in the world imprisons so many of its racial or ethnic minorities. The United States imprisons a larger percentage of its black population than South Africa did at the height of apartheid. Close quotes. That's from Michelle Alexander. So I think we can say what has to be said. Racism in the United States is not a theory. It's a long historical practice that yet demands more attention, more theorization, so that we might finally understand how and why this country is still haunted by the specter of black revolt, as you can see in the recent uprisings I mentioned above. Now, another scholar from, uh, I believe from Texas A&M, Tommy J. Curry, a philosopher, wrote a book that was published uh, just several months ago, I think it's definitely 2017, called The Man Not. The Man Not, on Temple University Press. It's hyphenated. The Man Hyphen Not. It's a remarkable study of the dehumanization of black men. Curry explores how racism in the United States extends incarceration beyond physical prisons into the psyches of black men. This is one of the things that Curry studies, which I think is really interesting. An extension of incarceration beyond physical prisons into the psyches of black men. And now let me quote briefly from Tommy Curry's The Man Not. Black male death despite its horror and gruesomeness, is tolerated within America. Many in our society accepted this reality as a norm, but what effect does death have on the lives, the mental concept of the self, that black males formulate in this violent world? How do black males regard the future in a world that is so limited by the present? Curry continues, imagine a world in which any individual who can be thought of as a victim of a black male has the power to define him as a criminal. This is the world many black males find themselves imprisoned within. Close quotes. Now notice there, notice that Curry talks about imprisonment beyond the prison, particularly in that last line. This is the world many black males find themselves imprisoned within. Black men outside of prisons are aware from a young age of the lopsided likelihood of their incarcerated bodies. and 
and this would be my claim this afternoon, black revolt is undoubtedly and often explicitly shaped by that awareness, by that reality. So now let's, let's talk a minute about revolt. Because when you think of the examples I mentioned, when you think about slave revolts going back to antiquity on up to the present day examples of, that I gave or others, there is a specter, a different specter that haunts you. It's the specter of violence. Because in the whole context and conversation of prisons and revolt, the whole discussion is haunted by the specter also of violence. And people always will say something like this, you have a point, but what about violence The response in the response and the revolt? Well, those who condemn revolts like to say that what they are condemning is violence. But the violence of revolt is minuscule by comparison to the quotidian violence in between the revolt. Now, the word quotidian may not be familiar to some of you. Quotidian, Q-U-O-T-I-D-I-A-N. I've never been really good for visual learners. So I don't have PowerPoints, but I also don't have the anxieties that go along with technological. <laughs> this, you know, so, you know, visual learners, I, I'm sorry that I'll, I'll do things like that. But the word quotidian refers to that which occurs every day. Quotidian means an everyday reality. Quotidian refers to what appears to us as ordinary or so much a part of our daily expectations that even though it may be awful, it may be awful, it has become mundane. That's one of the features of the quotidian. One of the features of the quotidian is that we come to accept as normal some awful things. We come to accept some things which ought to be unacceptable. We come to tolerate some things which ought to be intolerable. But because they're normal, their quotidian nature reassures us of their necessity and even of their morality. For example, this quotidian perspective describes how much of the West looks upon violence in the Muslim world. An attack in France is somehow always viewed as more extraordinary than an attack in an airport in Turkey. or in an aerial bombardment on Yemen. We expect the bombardment and the attack in those places, but not in other places. This is also how much of white America looks upon poverty in black cities. This is how much of white America looks upon black bodies in prisons as something to be expected there. According to Curry, the expectation of imprisonment and police brutality is a quotidian feature 
of what I would call, this is not Curry's term, but I think he describes this, carceral consciousness. A carceral consciousness, I find Curry describing in his new book. A carceral consciousness in the everyday understanding of black men, regardless of run-ins with the law. So what the quotidian does, among other things, is it conceals, although often very thinly, an everyday racism. The quotidian or the normalization of black bodies in prisons or poverty in black cities conceals often very thinly an everyday racism or we might just say the normal racism. The normal racism. The quotidian is not only racist, but it is also, I am sorry to tell you, capitalist. Because money, or the lack thereof, is expected to decide so much of everyday life. You accept it, don't you? That money will determine everything, if not immediately, ultimately, but oftentimes immediately too. Now, you say, I don't believe it. How could you believe it? Because one of the most, one of the most reliable features of your quotidian understanding is that, of course, capitalism is not causally related to any problem on earth. Can't be. But consider the Baltimore revolt of 2015. That's a real thing that really happened. Over 63% of Baltimore's population is black. The median income of the black population, $33,000, is half that of whites in the same city on average. Consider that $33,000, it's a median income, might not be a death sentence in Greenville, but in Baltimore, it's pretty damn close. Baltimore is in Maryland. Maryland is the richest state in this country. Nobody disagrees. Which ex a fact which exacerbates the already abysmal conditions of life for the poor. Young black men in Baltimore were unemployed at the startling rate of 37% in 2013. Compare that with 10% unemployment for white men of the same age. This is a particularly relevant feature of the economic context of life in Baltimore. One third of Maryland residents in the state's prisons are from the mostly black communities of Baltimore. And Maryland is not Baltimore. It's a state with other cities and towns. One third of the prisoners living in, Maryland's, uh, in, in Maryland come from the mostly black communities of Baltimore. Now add to poverty and questions of race, police brutality. Staggering 
to say this out loud, but it has to be said out loud frequently. And I would even invite you to repeat what I'm about to say. First, check it for yourself, and then, once you're reassured, repeat it. Police killed over 1,000 people in the United States in 2014. Over 1,000 in 2014. Police killed 1,209 people in 2015. 1,163 in 2016. And 2017, we still have two months. But I checked yesterday the numbers, and it appears to be headed in the same direction because roughly 100 people have been killed by police in the United States every month in 2017 so far. Something else. Beyond every killing we hear of, these numbers tell us something else. They tell us that there are thousands of other killings we don't hear of. Think about that. Between everyone we've heard of, there are thousands of others we have not. The names Michael Brown and Philando Castile are probably familiar to most of you. If not all of you, certainly many of you will have heard those names. Sandra Brown, Freddie Gray, certain names pop right out. But the victims we know are usually the names of those who were killed in cities that were rocked by revolt. There are killings in many other cities we don't hear about. Angela Davis points out also, quote, the sheer persistence of police killings of black youth contradicts the assumption that these are isolated aberrations. They're not isolated aberrations. She refers to, quoting her again, an unbroken stream of racist violence, both official and extra-legal, from slave patrols and the Ku Klux Klan to contemporary profiling practices and present-day vigilantes. A specific revolt may be hard to predict, but here's what I think is harder to understand. Why are they so infrequent? Why are there not that many more? Why are there so few revolts? And why here and not there? Why in one city as opposed to some other city where there was a case of lethal police brutality? So sometimes people wonder at the revolt. They say, why is this happening? To which I ask, why isn't it happening more? Why isn't it happening all the time? So, drawing to a close on this, so in, in between every instance of revolt, in between every single revolt, we are haunted by the next one. And I think it is finally time to resist and to reject every reaction against revolt as if it were an irrational response or a senseless violence, because that's 
those are two um, those are two of the three major objections to every revolt. The third that I didn't mention, but I'll just say quickly, is that it's impractical and doesn't change things. But the first two, that it's irrational or senseless. In fact, I think that within the context of the violence I have described up to this point, which I should tell you is only a very small part of a longer story I could have told, the only thing that seems to make sense is the revolt. That it's not happening is, frankly, quite perplexing, given the police killings, the, the, the numbers we have on incarceration and poverty. Frankly, if you consider those categories of macroeconomic and macro-social facts, the most confusing thing is not the revolt, but its absence or infrequence. Its absence appears as the irrational part. That's the part I think we should worry about most. I really think that's the part we should worry about most. So we don't need the end of revolts. And by the way, nor will we have that until we can abolish the quotidian violence that makes the revolt both healthy, inevitable, and sensible. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. Uh, thanks, Richard, for giving us a bunch of cool stuff to think about. Um, like Matt said, definitely worth picking up all those books um i read specters of revolt on an airplane uh and it was just like real good airplane reading so if you're going on an airplane that's the one you ought to get it uh you can find our podcast on all the usual social media platforms facebook and twitter and uh via email and all, all that kind of stuff just our name the magnificast and uh we'll see you next week when when matt is here in toronto uh recording in person I don't want to get up at church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hood.